Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Philip Elliott, a Washington correspondent for Time, a seasoned veteran Washington reporter, and someone who previously has visited with us. He's our eyes and ears inside the West Wing of the White House. Before joining Time, Phil spent a decade covering politics, campaign finance, education, and the White House for the Associated Press. Phil joins us to update us on the White House reaction to Michael Wolff's new book, Fire and Fury, and the president's posturing with North Korea and his claims that he is a, quote, stable genius, end quote. The book from Michael Wolff, Fire and Fury, the, the book that nobody can find in the bookstores, the White House has responded my word, fairly strangely to this book. And some people might say overreacted to the book. Uh, Put that in perspective for us, Phil. Well, I mean, for a book that the White House is trying to discredit at every opportunity it has, in, in many ways, people inside the administration are be beside themselves that a book that paints the president as obsessive over his media image and erratic in proportionality is proving them right in responding to a book that, if we're being honest, had this gone unremarked upon, might not have broken into the zeitgeist. That this is a book that has, has some serious and not insignificant factual problems in it um in in so much as uh, for example there are instances where uh michael wolf um states as a fact that president trump has appeared on the cover of my magazine more than anyone in history when factually that is just straight up not true um these type of things would have been debilitating for another book that did not have um the White House's such strong reaction it, it, by giving so much um, hatred and frustration from the president, it really has elevated it to the point of gospel. Well, also the the role of Steve Bannon as a major source in the book, and even his apology regrets, I guess, would be a better word that he that he sent out on Sunday in written form, didn't deny the, the, the quotes in, in the book. 
that has to have an overlay on this situation that that causes even more angst in the West Wing. So speaking to people who have spoken to the president about this, I, I have not had a chance to ask the president about this. Um, but those who have spoken at length to the president about this um, say that this has consumed his um, his week. It, it, it's, it shows no sign of abating that this really is something the president is obsessed with. Um, it, it, because keep in mind, Donald Trump um, and Steve Bannon were never a natural marriage. They were ciphers to each other. They were vessels onto which the other could project their needs, whether it was a need for affirmation with the president or a need for um, a deeply conservative, a kind of counter-Republican um, conservative that Mr. Bannon um, projected onto uh, then-candidate Trump. Um, th th it really is a, a mutually assured um, um, codependence at this point. What, what we all seem to be missing here, though, is that in, in Mr. Bannon putting this out there um, with for attribution, he's one of the few um, named sources in this book. Um, it, it really is almost a murder-suicide note from Mr. Bannon about what he views as the president's current political condition, a diagnosis for going forward, and really a prescription on how he might write this. That as much as dour as Mr. Bannon paints the picture of the current White House, there is still a glimmer of hope for what he sees as a potential balance of the president's time and power. And that right there is why a lot of, um, of the president's nominal allies in the form of say leader McConnell, speaker Ryan are paying attention to this as well. Um, that th there is a chance to have a turnaround here um, to, to possibly write this ship. And by the fact that we are still, we are now in week two of this dominating cable news there that might be more effective in capturing the president's attention and imagination than any policy memo or polling document um, that they could have put on the president's desk do you understand uh, bannon's motivation here it seems that certainly one could argue that during the campaign, he was the architect of draining the swamp uh, and, and at the beginning of this administration, uh, tearing down the institutions of government. And that seemed to be very much along the lines of how Trump appealed to a certain segment of of voters. What is Bannon's motivation in all of this? Bannon sees himself as, uh, for, and this is going to carry a lot of um, baggage with it, so I, I want to just acknowledge that I know what I'm saying here, Sure, is that he sees himself as a Lenin-type figure, um, that he is someone who can go into a society, into institutions, into structures of power and destroy them to build something new. Um, B Mr. Bannon has described himself 
on uh, as a Leninist um, that he can take a look at institutions and the power they wield and dismantle them in a way um, that brings um, brings about a new utopian reality. Um, it, to, he is by no means a humble individual um, <laughs> to, to, to try to undertake this, but he's also not irrational when it comes to this, that you, you sit down with Mr. Bannon, you have uh, conversations as we have at this magazine, um, both in the White House and after the White House, um, about how he sees the role of government and his ability to shape it. Um, he, he rightly notes that history is good for about an 80 year cycle. And then everything reboots itself. Everything reinvents itself. And since the late fifties, early sixties, throughout the sixties, um, there, there is a moment of a reckoning that the United States is due to undergo Mr. Bannon sees this as an opportunity to realign the parties, realign the role of government, realign the potential for what government can or should do. Um, he, he, he saw himself as getting a front row seat to accomplish that. That said, his time in the White House was deeply frustrating. Um, the, the potential of government to do good or do less bad he saw as limited um he also i don't think fully understood just how little power an executive presidency had and questioned how much sway he had over the president himself that there are limits to not just the president's attention span as this book details if it is um accurate but also the president's loyalty, which we have seen time and again, is is a finite resource. Let's move on. We have so much to cover, and, and I want to touch on all of it. And some of it's interrelated and some of it isn't, but I'll let you put through the common threads. About a week ago, the, the president had this... Uh, Twitter convulsion uh, about North Korea. My button is bigger than your button. My button works, implying yours doesn't to, to North Korea. At the same time, he was chastising Pakistan, which ended up with perhaps freezing of some aid to go to Pakistan. And he jumped in on the disturbances in Iran, which have you know, according to other experts, were significant, but not that greatly significant. All these three things in foreign relations, can we lump those together and see any pattern with this president? Yes, and it's it's not necessarily a pattern that gives professionals in the foreign policy circle any comfort, um, that this is a behavior that is very unsettling to a lot of veterans of both parties. Uh, I was talking to a very senior member of the George W. Bush National Security Council staff um, last week, 
And he, he was, he, he just marveled that had George W. Bush done this, it would have been just a moment of international worry. The domestic politics of this would have been so fierce. Um, and with President Trump, it just is yet, it, it's a Tuesday. It's, it's another day, of, right? It's another day. Um, but it's to the, the, these instances um, go, go to a broader pattern of the president trying to conduct um, foreign policy by gut, by instinct, not by scholarship or um, professional um, foreign policy thinkers. And it, it really betrays not just American tradition, but it, it, it might betray the, just the core of who we are as a country that in, in taunting North Korea in this sort of Twitter um, locker room talk for, for to borrow the president's own language from the 2016 campaign. <laughs> right. um, it, it really is a, a moment where either the president is egging on some sort of crisis or abdicating the United States role um, and trying to be a broker in this situation is stunning and perhaps counterproductive um, to the point of irre uh, impossible to repair moments. Pakistan, he, the president's obsession with Pakistan, people are trying, no one has yet explained to me why he thinks goading Pakistan. At the same time, his, his, the Pakistan-India relationship is always very always broad for U.S. Right. policy. Yeah. That for years, a Secretary of State could not go to India without going to Pakistan. You, both of them are nuclear. And this is it's, it's not just that they're nuclear. These are states, this was a, a former British colony, basically, that divided on the basis of religion. Um, so trying to throw religion plus nukes into a region and then trying to deny one economic aid while propping up the other is just really dangerous. Um, and, and yes, Pakistan is not necessarily um, an immaculate ally of the United States. Keep in mind, uh, bin Laden was able to hide in the equivalent of Annapolis, Maryland, um, <laughs> inside Pakistan, right. uh, it, it is it is a, a it is it is cause for concern. But this this was also just the president uh, reacting from a gut level, um, and then you, you throw in there the the question of the U.S. involvement in Iran. Iran is basically running a proxy war against Saudi Arabia through the mass um, um, famine and human rights disaster that is Yemen, because in part, the, the United States decided to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, thereby denying that as part of the negotiations with uh, the Palestinians. Um, it, all of this just leaves people at the State Department pulling the, whatever hair they have left out of their skull, just saying, there's so much at stake here, and the president is going by gut, trying to in a hundred in one hundred and 
40 characters, 280 characters, whatever yeah. uh, constrictions Twitter still has on the president, um, trying to conduct American foreign policy that has vexed very skilled diplomats for a half century. It, it's really um, maddening for a lot of foreign policy professionals, at, especially at a time when the State Department is grossly understaffed and cannot get um, anyone really um, into very important jobs that they need, that, that really um, the future of the free world depends on having um, r- smart people in the right roles. Now, translating this to people out here in the in the Midwest and in the hinterlands. Uh, hey, I grew let, up out there. I know, I know you did. <laughs> let, let me just tell you that being a, a person who was a child in the 50s and went through the ridiculous let's get under our wooden desks and protect ourselves from nuclear holocaust in, in, in the middle of the Cold War, you know, up through the Cuban Missile Crisis in, in the early 1960s, you know, we got a bit complacent and thought, you know, this is never going to happen. The Soviet Union has disbanded. Uh, all's right with the world. And now we have this almost weekly saber rattling with nuclear power. And I have talked to so many people who are uh, getting extra water for their house, getting canned foods. It's almost back to the point of building your bomb shelter in your basement. Uh, it's it's amazing how this is translating out here uh, to the average person. Well, and the reason why the Cold War stayed a Cold War is both sides assumed the other was a rational actor. And there is a very real danger when our adversaries are not certain that the president of the United States is a rational actor. They might not have respected necessarily, like they might not have respected uh, JFK, but they knew he and the people around him were rational. I don't know that the world is looking at the United States at this point and assuming the same that the president seems to be going out of his way to try to demonstrate that he is not like previous presidents, that he is not the same cut from the same cloth as LBJ, that he, Ronald Reagan was a a tough talker, but Donald Trump is going to talk um, about the size and functionality of his button. this, this This is a moment where America's adversaries, enemies, foes, rivals, trying to discern what is happening. You you talk to intelligence professionals (laughs) and friends. You you talk to people who work in the intelligence community, and they, they will tell you that as much as anything, the president's tweets and one off string press conferences shape their intelligence assessments of the United States as much as any of the spies they have um, here in the United States under um, diplomatic cover, deep cover, um, or just transparently walking the streets um, because we, we just don't really care 
um, in this administration for counterintelligence at this moment. Um, it, it's a really remarkable um, revelation that um, so much of the intelligence collection can happen on a publicly sourced Twitter.com account. Well, we have sort of a confluence of things here that that I wanted to bring up to you and get your response. We have the Fire and Fury book. We have all of this nuclear saber rattling that we just talked about uh, with North Korea and, and others. Uh, then we have both the book and some uh, analysts and critics questioning the, the, the president's stability. So what's he do? He puts out a tweet saying he's, quote, like smart, really smart, and that he's a stable genius. Um, when I was practicing law and somebody protested too much to me, it always raised red flags to me. Um, what is going on here? I think you're looking at, to put the president on the couch here for a moment, is so much of what drives the president and drove him as a businessman, as a reality television star, is a need for affirmation. Um, we, we, we have seen this time and again whether it was his first cabinet meeting where he went around the room and made his cabinet oh, spend yes. some time praising him about how wonderful he was. It was based, it was a very much a dear leader moment. It was genuflecting made, with the, <laughs> at the utmost. And it made a lot of members of the cabinet and their deputies very uncomfortable. But this is, this is where we are. A lot of members of the Republican Party who were at Camp David, the leadership went to Camp David right. um, over the weekend. And a lot of it going in, they had prepared that they would have to have the president's successes on the tip of their tongue so they could praise him for all of his victories. I think there's an op there was a window there before the president ran where he might not have run, had enough people in power recognize that the president could run and he could win. You talk to people who were talking to Donald Trump during late 14, early 15, they didn't think he would run, but the more and more he was dismissed as a charlatan or um, someone who just didn't have the gumption to run, he wanted to prove them wrong. And then he ran. And then he won the nomination, and then he won the presidency. And I think that was a way for him to fight the low expectations and to get, not if not affirmation, but um, confirmation that he is, in his words, like really smart, and that he can, he can do what others have not been able to accomplish. Setting aside, of course, some of the factual problems with his tweets about being like really smart and having only run for president once. He actually ran for president in 2000, we, we, we should remember, but we are just willing to put that aside um, in service of his broader um, intellectual exercise um, that he was able to do what no one else was able. 
Well, let's take that to a practical level. We had this retreat, uh, the Republican uh, powers at Camp David over over the weekend. Uh, But we have a potential federal shutdown looming in middle of January. We have uh, just another one of these continuing resolutions that put things off till after the holidays. Uh, like some people do with their home budgets and 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 things. Well, we'll put that off till January. Well, the federal government did the same. What's going to come out of this? We we had the tax bill go through, but there are a lot of different angles to this budget and to the uh, federal shutdown. There are, um, not the least of which is the potential. Um, impact on the midterm elections, that shutting down the government is basically a suicide mission for the party that controls the White House. Paul Ryan and um, Mitch McConnell have tried repeatedly to tell the president that a shutdown would be a disaster. There is no such thing as a good shutdown uh, for the president's party uh, that holds the White House. They, they, there, there are a couple moving pieces here and to the consternation of not just leaders in Congress, but senior officials at the White House, is they haven't figured out yet what is the um, battlefield on which they're playing. That are they going to try to do something for the dreamers? Are they going to do um, a, a short-term, long-term, no-term fix for DACA um, for the children who came here um, as came here illegally as children uh, is the border wall going to be necessary to help those young people are, are we, we still don't have a proper disaster relief package um, for Puerto Rico uh, where half the island is still without power and Americans are dying on that island nation um, we, 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 we there's so much that needs to be, done and the political cost of inaction or malfeasance, nonfeasance, misfeasance, however we want to cast it, is incredibly high and Republicans will bear the blame on that. You you take a look around, just consider the state of Florida, where there's a lot of debate about the numbers, but if we're going to just assume the governor of Florida is correct when he says there are 300,000 Puerto Ricans who have gone to Florida. Assume half of those are adults, half of those are children. That that makes roughly 150,000 new voters. Mm-hmm. Right. The president won the state of Florida by about 113,000 votes. The, if, it's tough for anyone to win the White House without carrying Florida. It's like Ohio that way. Right. And do you really think any of those new voters or their family members or their neighbors are going to vote for a party that controls the House, the Senate, and the White House and didn't vote to restore power to the island. That there there really is a potential generational um, um, hobbling of the Republican Party if they don't get the, their act together on this. It's part of the reason why the political and nonprofit organizations that are um, – funded in part led by tr- billionaires Charles and David Koch are doing everything they they have started programs uh roughly titled Welcome to Florida for these uh Puerto Ricans 
help them acclimate to their communities, get them in schools, get them driver's license, help them learn English if they want. Um, it really is the, the, the Koch brothers, the um, libertarian billionaires are doing spending a ton of money laying the groundwork so that the Republican Party brand doesn't stay completely in the sewer um, if the Republican Party can't get together a relief package to help the Americans in Puerto Rico. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Last week, Mitt Romney a potential candidate for the U.S. Senate in Utah. You spent a lot of time covering <laughs> Mitt Romney and a lot of your career covering Mitt Romney. Uh, I, I'm amazed that the president has restrained himself and hasn't started tweeting and, and given Romney a nickname beyond choke artist, which he did during the, the campaign, used during the campaign. Uh is Mitt Romney a specter for uh, waiting in the wings for Donald Trump to, to look at? Potentially. There, the, the, you have to keep in mind the Senate seat in Utah should be safe. A should year be, ago, yeah, I would have yeah. should be a year ago. I would have said a Senate seat in Alabama should <laughs> be safe. Right. That the president, when he gets the politics wrong really gets it wrong. Um, the, the Republicans in the Senate have a one-seat majority right now, 51-49, with the vice president breaking the tie, trying to wade into Utah primary politics could be a disaster for this president. The president, the, the one state where a third-party candidate stood a chance in 2016 was Utah. Mitt Romney is considered a prince of uh, among Mormons, that his family is incredibly significant uh, in the LDS community. Trying to attack one of their own will backfire in a big way on the president. Orrin Hatch remains a very powerful committee chairman until he leaves Congress at the end of this term. You just can't. This is a minefield for the president if he gets the politics wrong. Right. At the same time, and I, as much as as much time as I've spent with Governor Romney, both during his time as chairman of the Republican Governors Association, his time 
running for president in 08, my time in 2012 with him. Right. Um, I, I, there, there were stretches where I saw um, Mitt Romney more often than I saw my herb garden uh, <laughs> in 2012. Um, he can and has shown an ability to squander opportunity um, in a very big way if he goes with his gut, whereas President Trump's gut, to all of our sh- shock, uh, often gets it right. Um, to our disappointment, Mitt Romney's gut often directs him into the wrong way. I'm thinking of his declaration that he's severely conservative, that people in this country should self-deport that he has very his friends own sporting teams um there's just Mitt Romney is not a skilled politician he's a skilled um political leader and if Mitt Romney gets through uh the the Republican primary in Utah somehow doesn't mess up against a democratic opponent in utah he could arrive at the senate with far greater power than the typical first term senator comes with almost statesman status right he, he would arrive as a statesman yeah, I'm, th- right. I'm thinking and i'm thinking of the way perhaps hillary clinton arrived in the senate right. in, in that lens but unlike a presidential campaign the senate is a place where you see a lawmaker you can walk up to the lawmaker and ask them anything. There are no protectors in the Senate. There are There is no rope line. There is no bike rack. There is no way to just say, go back to your spot on the bus and the motorcade. Mitt Romney will constantly be asked questions about President Trump. And he is going to have to figure out a way to decide whether he wants to be a, a Trump antagonist, a Trump apologist, that he is going to be not just a first-term senator, but the most in-demand political commentator in the country. And we have seen time and again, Governor Romney does not fare well in those situations and could immediately find himself um, with a, a presidential nickname by way of Twitter. Speaking of targets on Twitter, let's move, if we can, to Jeff Sessions, uh, the Attorney General of the United States, who was not at the retreat at Camp David, wasn't invited to the retreat at Camp David. but I don't want to just look at Jeff Sessions. I want to look at the presidential attack, uh, and I think that's an appropriate word, on the Department of Justice and the FBI led by the Attorney General. It really is remarkable um, to watch the president and his allies systematically go after the, uh, the Justice Department, which in typical times is either outside of politics, above politics, um, or ha- has so much power that everyone's afraid to even discuss it. Um, <laughs> back in the days of J. Edgar. <laughs> back in the J. Back, I, I would I would even go back to back in the days of Loretta Lynch. Right. Um, okay. That we we can take a look at the Justice Department, of which the FBI is a significant part. That there, there's a reason why the FBI director 
the term there was staggered to bridge presidential terms and be above the typical um, churn of government. And the president just straight up fired the FBI director uh, last year. There are signs that he might do the same for his attorney general. There is discussion that what would happen if he had to remove um, the, the the deputy FBI director who may or may not, who was um, caught up in the latest political um, churn, that there's there's just a ton of unease among, and it's not among the longtime professional class who work in law enforcement, not just at the Justice Department and the FBI. But there's a ton of law enforcement through other agencies as well. The Treasury Department, right. Homeland Security, um, the State Department with their diplomatic uh, security. U.S. Marshals. Yeah. U.S. Marshals. There, there's a lot. There are a lot of men and women who really believe the rule of law and norms deserve to be protected regardless of party without favor, without fear or favor of the um, political whims at the White House. There, there, there is a very appreciate, appreciable um, apprehension among them about what would happen if the president woke up one day and decided that this is just not what he wants to see. These are not the people he wants working in his name and more importantly, in our name as Americans. Um, in, 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 in these really important jobs, we, we, not only combined with that is there is as much as Democrats don't like Jeff Sessions. They found him, uh, uh, just a slimy guy as a colleague when he was in the Senate. They don't, they don't like him as a person. But now they have to almost embrace him. Exactly. The number of Democrats who I speak to who have made defending Jeff Sessions and keeping him attorney general, despite how much they disagree with him on policy, is really a remarkable statement about the resiliency of our democratic system and the experiment of um, the rule of law and its supremacy. That really they are they are going, if Trump were to slash Jeff Sessions in a tangible way uh, and remove him from office. I, I think you would that would be a that would be a um, a watershed moment. That said, you, you we, we spend a lot of our time uh, in calling the people the president also calls right. to gauge his mood to I mean basically there are about 55 to 70 people the president, on any given week has phoned to sound them out for unofficial advice to be told he's doing a great job to um, just get, get outside of his payroll affirmation um, about how brilliant he is conducting affairs of state. And within the last two or three, well, since, since coming back from holiday, there has been a lot of unprompted conversation. I call and talk to people like, 
what what is the president really thinking about North Korea? Well, you know he hates Jeff Sessions. <laughs> so the president, where, where where is he on? Has he has he had a chance to talk to Mid? Has has, has he talked about what he's thinking about um, Puerto Rico? Is he excited about spring getting back to Washington? Is he building a new clubhouse at any of his clubs? Just what what is the president excited about? You know he hates Jeff Sessions. <laughs> like it, it unprompted the mantra. to a T. Unprompted to a T. Everyone who speaks to the president um, comes away with that is the dominant concern, one of the two dominant concerns for the president, um, because he really thinks Jeff Sessions is the one who was to blame for this whole Russia investigation. Um, the, the president still has refused to um, square away the question whether he bears any responsibility um, for potential collusion among his campaign staffers with the Russians, the, 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 the dismissal of James Comey, the appointment of Robert Mueller. All of this, in his mind, is Jeff Sessions' fault. Well, I want to transition this to the Russian investigation, the other uh, worry of of the White House, and and we'll we'll end with this. But you know, when I was practicing law for so many years, and I had a client who really said they wanted to testify in 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 a trial, uh, in a criminal trial. And I, as their attorney, knew it would be suicide to do it. That was the most difficult situation for an attorney. I'm now looking at these White House attorneys trying to negotiate with special counsel Mueller about the president having a conversation or testifying, however you would like to characterize it, with Mueller. I can see the president, I don't know this, but I can see the president saying, hey, I'm like really smart and I'm a stable genius. I can outthink Mueller. I can out uh, anticipate Mueller. And I want to do this uh, to to clear my name. What is the status of all of this, Phil? So the White House lawyers see their one hope in Jared Kushner. They think that Jared and Jared alone can convince the president that this is a very bad idea that does not end well if the president wants to engage on this. That said, Jared to this point has not been successful in um, persuading the president that this won't work. And there are two thoughts about this. One is, you know, the president has consistently proven a more able and more Teflon-like figure than anyone has anticipated or given him credit for. That, you know what, he might survive this. I mean, this was a man who was on tape bragging about grabbing female, sexually assaulting females while running against the first female nominee of a major party candidate, and he won white women. So maybe maybe the typical rules of gravity and political physics don't apply to him. The other is the president, when you get him, and I I went through during the campaign and reviewed the depositions he has given, Donald Trump, the performer, and Donald Trump under oath, 
are very different individuals hmm. that the president understands when he when he's outside of the P.T. Barnum role, when he's not trying to be a promoter, when he's not trying to um, get, get, get away with something. He is very careful in his answers that he heeds um, his lawyer's advice. He answers only the question that is asked offers no more information and is to a to a predictable level forgetful the number of times during depositions he he tells people that he does not recall he doesn't remember i have no recollection of that it really is um it, it is the responsible thing to do if you are um, the president and facing questions of no one can prove you don't remember something that said the wolf book to bring it back to where we started the conversation that professes him to be mentally unfit for the office of the president, forgetful, childlike, incapable of higher order thinking. I don't know how, the president will bring himself to be humble enough to say he doesn't remember something at the time he's trying to tell everyone that he's like really smart. Yeah. That might be the trap that the real legacy of the Wolf book has laid for this president. It, it might be. And and you talked about Teflon and, and certainly that has been true on the political front. But now that we're dealing with the legal front, uh, th- things might change uh, a, a bit, but God, that's only <laughs> conjecture on my part at this at this juncture. Hey, Phil, what? Uh, one last thing, and and then I'll let you go. And that is, uh, you know, people out here and everywhere are overloaded. Uh, you uh, soak all this news up like it's your lifeblood, and I know it is, but. People out here are overloaded, and they have to pick and choose what they're concerned about. If you were the average person living in the Midwest, what would you be looking for in the next couple of months What is the big news item? I would say control of Congress is going to be a very, very difficult um, fight for the Republicans. Uh, I was out in Nebraska um, a few weeks ago. Uh, checking out a super PAC that Paul Ryan um, has put together. They're going to spend $100 million, and they have 26 offices up and running um, to defend the most vulnerable incumbent Republicans in the country. Um, You're you're going to see um, heavy spending, a lot of door knocking, um, a ton of energy and enthusiasm trying to keep Paul Ryan in the speaker job. History tells us it's impossible to do. On average, um, first-term presidents tend to lose um, in somewhere around 34 to 38 seats um, in their first go-round, um, their first midterms. The Republicans have uh, a majority of 24 seats in the House. 35 Republicans have decided to retire um, or seek other office <laughs> already. Right. right. It, it's it, Congress is not fun right now, uh, even in the majority. Um, I think I think the fight over Congress is going to be important. 
And I think immigration is a moment where the political risk of inaction um, is incredibly high. I don't know that anyone is going to have a moment of political bravery um, and actually move forward with um, any proposal or fixes um, to a system that clearly needs um, reform. But I think that backed into a corner with nowhere else to go, I could see the Republican Party considering that more seriously than they have in the past. Um, it's worth noting that everything they have demanded um, in, in, in a reform package has already passed the Senate. In 2013, it was called the Gang of Eight Bill, bipartisan, passed the Senate um, very comfortably that has border security. We, we, Trump would call it a wall, passed the citizenship after a very difficult time. You go to the back of the line. It was a, it was a very comprehensive and thoughtful piece of legislation that also ended chain migration, which is the president's um, obsession at the moment. Um, but it, it, would, it was not even considered in the House. I could see if the, if the Republican Party runs out of things to do this year um, and sees that they are going to lose, to, in the president's phrase, bigly um, in the midterms, I could see that in an act of desperation, them stumbling into good policy through that. Phil, it's always a pleasure. You raise the curtain for us and let us look behind. It's like the Wizard of Oz. You know, so <laughs> sometimes pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, but you pull the curtain back and let us see what's really going on. And, and we really, really appreciate it. Anytime, Tom. Today, we've been talking with Washington correspondent for Time, Philip Elliott, for a behind-the-scenes update on the troubles facing the Trump administration, the budget, and other key issues. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. You can also find us on the NPR Podcast Directory. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast, or you can review it through Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.